This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your spring-like podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and beyond. My name is Ned Bolting. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Laura Laker. This week, and without any further ado, I want to introduce our special guest, because I know that behind the scenes, Adam and Laura have uh, spent a while trying to set this up. Um, We're very, very pleased to be able to introduce Walking and Cycling Commissioner for London, uh, Dr. Will Norman. Now, I'm sure many of you will know exactly who uh, Will is and what he does, but for those of you who don't, um, Will was appointed four years ago with the task of trebling the length of cycleways uh, delivered by his predecessor. And uh, he also has walking in his title, unlike Andrew Gilligan, who was his predecessor. Now, we thought things were emotionally fraught around active travel back then when protesters over CS11 had turned the uh, conversation, quotes, uncivil. Little did we know uh, quite where we'd find ourselves now. Um, so I guess my, my first question to you, Will, before I sort of leave the floor open to, to Adam and Laura, is um, how are you amidst all this uh, febrile atmosphere in which we find ourselves and how are you navigating it all? Hi, hi everyone. I'm, well, thanks for having me on. I, 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 it's a good question. How am I? I'm, I'm shattered. It's been, it's been, I think it's been a difficult year for everybody. You know, this has been exhausting whatever anyone does. Uh, but I think, as you said, you know, the sort of the world of active travel has never been more important. And the amount of stuff that's been going on in London has been nothing short of phenomenal. But with that, you always get, you know, you, 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 get, a, you get a backlash and, and, uh, and there are, you know, the, I think the scale and the pace of everything that's been delivered just has meant that the sort of the scale of the backlash has been proportional to that. And, you know, I think 
you're right. Not all of it has been civil, and and that can can be draining at times. Is it something? Um, well, when you when you started this job, uh, obviously no one was able to no one was able to predict the situation we got into um, with with COVID and the pandemic, of course. But obviously, it's a public role. It's it's quite high profile. Did you did you uh, think it would be like this, uh, or is this off 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 the scale? Because you you you've been thrusted into a very public position because of how um, how uh, important active travel is at the moment and how integral your role is to, to delivering it. Yeah, it seems a long time ago since I started this job, and I think my, my grey hairs that I'm not sure your listeners can see account for for, for certainly uh, how I felt. You know, the time has been ups and downs that time. Laura wrote an article when I first started, and the headline in the Guardian was. <laughs> I was going to mention this. This guy's too nice to do his job. And <laughs> at which point, or, I can't remember it, but it, essentially all my friends then started texting me fake news. Will Norman is not a nice guy. Uh, but I think, I think coming into the job, I hadn't really, re- you know, I knew that it would be a challenge. I took the job because it was a challenge and it was something I believed in, but I hadn't really quite realised just when you start delivering how you know how heightened how much heightened emotion there is on both sides, and that's both from people who oppose things, but also um, who don't want to see cycling, but also for cyclists who want to see more and they want to see it better and they want to see it faster. Um, and so that, um, that 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 sort of that public role, I think, was. It wasn't a complete shock, but the sort of the the intensity of it, I think, came as a, a bit of a shock. And it's something that I've sort of, you know, I I think I've um I've learned to learned to 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 get on with. Just in in pure practical terms, Will, about the kind of nuts and bolts and the detail of your job. Um, as you say, you know, it's been a few years now since you've been in the role. What you know, leaving aside the kind of like all the fluff that goes—not fluff—that's totally the wrong word—but the context that you've just mentioned around yeah. the debate. What has, has your opinion about what is desirable, achievable um, changed? You know, have you actually learned about this mammoth task that is kind of you know the, the active travel revolution? And if so, what what would what would the key lessons there be? Oh yeah, without a shadow of doubt, I think I've learned an astonishing amount. And anyone who's been with me in any part of the journey, I think if you track back through my various quotes and tweets, uh, you can see that I've been learning as as we go along. And hopefully, I've been get, getting better at it. Um, I think you know the job itself has changed. You know, we started off, you know, setting out a strategy, setting out a plan, um, how we deliver it, learning from what works, what doesn't. You know, for me, and particularly in the last year, it's gone to show just actually you can we can deliver a huge amount and we can do it quickly and we can do it well. Um, but that takes more than you know it, that, that that takes an awful lot of people, and and it's all what's happened in London over the past year or so. I think is all credit to the amazing teams that are out there, both in TFL and in the boroughs. You can't just um, can't just rock up at the Olympics and expect to compete in the and deliver your best performance in the hundred meter sprint, having not done any training. And I think that for the four, first four years of this administration, we were delivering record amounts, and we we did meet that target to triple the amount of protected cycle lanes, which I think quite a lot of people, including the people who set us that target, didn't think we would do, but we achieved that. Um, but because of the skill and the experience of everybody who helped achieve that. 
they then just, you know, they were able to really accelerate and do innovative things at a very different scale and pace during the COVID crisis that has seen this huge boom in cycling across the capital. Um, it's it funny that you mentioned that article. I, ha- I had a look at that just this afternoon, actually. Um, and it's amazing looking back how much things have um, changed and the kind of ambition that you had uh, back then for stuff. And, and I was, I was ch- chuckling, perhaps slightly sadly. Have you still got it? I've still got it, I think. I think my mum <laughs> sent it to me. It's got a, it, it was actually in print. I didn't realise it went in print, actually. Um, so, yeah, it was, yeah, it's quite interesting looking back because it was like Oxford Street pedestrianisation, which hasn't happened. There was like CS11, which hasn't happened. King's Cross Gyratory, still horrible. We've got Lambeth Bridge North, which is still like super lethal. Um, and well, actually, uh, oh, yeah. Lambeth Bridge North yeah. isn't super lethal at the moment because it's got the temporary scene in, but the South, oh, I yeah, would agree some, with you on that. It's got some stuff, yeah. Um, Euston Road, Water, Waterloo IMAX. Yeah, there's still quite a lot that kind of, didn't get done, but then kind of stuff that got that kind of replaced it. Do you? I don't know. Well, do you have that any was kind of part of the learning? On you know, when I came into the job, there were these schemes that you would just sort of pursue relentlessly. You know, CS11, I think, is a good good example of that, or Oxford Street, where we sort of say we're going to do this, yeah, and then we're just going to carry on pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing until until, until we do it, and it didn't work. You know, it just didn't work. Particularly those two schemes, I would call out in particular, and. You know, what I took away from that is that actually to deliver some of the scale that we need across the city, and, and we all recognize we need a, a really integrated cycle network. You know, I think our plans for something like 14,000, uh, 1,400 kilometers, 1,400 kilometers across the city to do that. And if you're getting stuck on one kilometer of that, yeah, you could devote all your energies onto that bit where you're stuck. But there are plenty of other schemes, there are plenty of other areas across the city where where the infrastructure is needed. So the, the shift that happened, certainly in my head, was that we need a pipeline of this stuff. Yeah, We need to be able to uh, sort of over-program for what we want to deliver so that if something is not working, if there's political um, objections to that, as there was with Cycle uh, uh, Highway 11 from Westminster, if we come across those barriers and it's getting to the point where actually, is this the best use of all our time and resources? then we need to, and, and it's not working, Let, well, let's shift to something else, yeah, which is deliverable. And I think that that approach has helped us deliver all that we have done in this in this term. There are, as you said, loads of things that we that we still haven't delivered and we need to deliver. Um, those junctions, the, the, I still want to, you know, Swiss Cottage is still a horrendous space for pedestrians and for cyclists, and, and we need to get that right. You know, Regent's Park, you've still got cars zooming around there at I don't know what speed. And, you know, it's a park. It should be for space for people to enjoy. You know, these things haven't gone off my list, but it's like, well, should we be, should I still be pushing that and not having not delivered anything else in the meantime? And my conclusion was, no, we need a pipeline of stuff. Let's get cracking. There's so much need for this infrastructure across the city. The, The emphasis should be on delivering it. And and I think from my experience and over the last four years, some areas of the city have been really embraced this and have done from the outset. So you look at Waltham Forest or Hackney, Camden, but then other boroughs have been looking at that and seeing what's happening and suddenly saying, well, actually, no, we want that. You look at the changes that have been happening in Hounslow or Greenwich or, you know, I could think of all sorts of boroughs across in Southern. There are all these changes happening. But suddenly other boroughs are thinking, actually, you know, we want some of that. Our residents want to be safe. Our kids, you know, we want our kids to be able to walk to school safely. Um, and I think that, you know, 
the more we deliver, the more appetite there is for more because other people will say, well, they've got it and it's not fair that we haven't. So you've done what you have done is is kind of uh, TFL sent me a list of all of the routes that have been completed and the ones that are being completed. And it adds up to just over 100 kilometres. Um, are you are you kind of happy with the with the with what you've delivered in terms of the standards and the and the amount? Because it's been a heck of a busy time. Uh, so the hundred kilometres, I think, is just that what that's been delivered in the last twelve months. Um, you know, before oh, yeah. we had tripled the amount of cycle routes. So, so you know, there were then one hundred and sixty kilometres that we had before COVID um, of of the protected lanes, but also the hundreds of kilometres of quieter streets through low traffic neighbourhoods, but also non protected cycleways like some of the quiet ways that have been really enhanced during this. So, um, so there's been a I think there's been a huge amount that has been delivered. Um, there's a huge amount more to deliver. So I, I think, um, you know, we were, we're doing the right stuff. And I think bringing in the, bringing in the quality criteria. Um, so initially, when I inherited some of the programs uh, for my predecessor, there weren't quality criteria for some of the schemes that were being delivered on, on Borough on Road. So, you know, quite frankly, some of the quiet ways weren't quiet. Um, uh, and um, and that was and and we all know that unless you've got good quality infrastructure, then people who are nervous or not cycling won't be attracted to fit unless they feel safe. They're not going to do it. And, you know, for me, that was always to take a term for my previous life. You know, that was the market I was wanting to go after. It wasn't, you know, we want to make existing cyclists safer. But we, what we really want to do is getting people who aren't cycling often or have got a bike in the shed and or hanging on a balcony. And how do you bring those bikes out of hibernation and get those people to start using that to get around the city? And to do that, you need safety. And putting in, my, in my, uh, infrastructure without those quality criteria, without having that, uh, that ability to say, no, look, if that isn't good enough, we're not paying for it. Uh, then you're not going to get those people uh, on their bikes and, in, and and being able to enjoy the benefits that uh, that people that that, that, that that people get from 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 pottering about pottering about the city on their bike. A lot of people listening to this will perhaps think that uh, you're the cycling walking commission for London. You you know it's totally in your gift to create a London cycle network. Um, and some of our listeners will also know that that's not the case. You know, there are 32 boroughs um, and uh, they, uh, you know, they don't always um, do what's needed. They, some of them are great. Some of them don't do very much. Your, your job role, therefore, like, could you explain a little bit about how you go about it? Is it a form of, you know, the politics of compromise? You know, is it about, uh, is, is it about, I think people used to say about Andrew Gilligan, he used to sort of go in and say, we're doing this kind of, you know, get with the program kind of thing. How do you approach it and how does it work in practice? And and how difficult is it trying to get 32 different individually politically controlled boroughs to, to build up a London cycling network? I think that's the key challenge of the job. And I think that's why it's so important that we, London does have someone who's, who's tasked to, to do that. You know, we have we have the boroughs, but there are other highway authorities. I've never heard of the Crown Estates Paving Commission, who are responsible for the roads in Regent Park. And <laughs> no, nobody has, Will. Nobody no, has. Well, they <laughs> hope they have now. But, you know, the, as, the, as working for the mayor, I, you know, we've got the, the 5% of London's roads are, 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 you know, are controlled by or the highway authority of TfL for 5% of London's roads. 95% of London roads aren't. And 
So therefore, working with the boroughs, who are the main highway authorities for, for the rest of that, is an absolutely essential part of, of, this, uh, of this role. And it, you can't just stand and shout at people until they do as you're told, because eventually they stop, they stop <laughs> listening to you. You know, if anyone's got children who's listening, standing and shouting at <laughs> your kids isn't, you know, there are, there are other things you need to do to try and uh, to persuade people and influence people and cajole people. Part of that is about rewarding and publicizing great stuff, telling those really positive stories about what happens when you do do to make some of those changes. And I think that part of my role is doing that. It's celebrating success, not just because we want to blow our own trump trumpet, but it's about actually saying, well, this is what's possible. you know. And, and as I said, when people see what's happening in some parts of London, they go, well, that's not fair. Why can they cycle safely? As I said, why can I? Why can those people get to the shops without having to, you know, risk their lives crossing some dangerous roads? Why? Why are their kids cycling or scooting to school? Um, why can't my kids do that? So that telling those stories of success, tracking the data is is part of that. Showcasing where things are not working, I think, is part of that too. So you know, I look at Kensington and Chelsea as a borough at the moment. I would say is not working and is not delivering safer streets for its residents. Um, there is an awful lot, you know, there are powers that we do have. There's finances that we that we do have and, and how we control the investments. I say, you know, I say before, I'm, I'd much rather invest the money in boroughs which are doing good stuff and and uh than than sort of constantly trying to, you know, and and, and hence having the quality criteria, because you don't want to spend money on things that aren't aren't good enough. Um, but there's also a lot of sort of personal interactions, knowing people, there's compromise, there's negotiation, there is that, you know, it's the same with anything in life. You know, if you want to try and to persuade, cajole, influence uh, people to do things that maybe they're, you know, a bit skeptical of, um, you've got to make the case, you've got to argue, you've got to, you know, well, maybe if we don't do that, we could do this. And, you know, for me, the, the, the benefit, you know, we, I don't want to be too ideological. I'm a pragmatist on this. I don't think we can deliver the stuff that we can in London without being taking a pragmatic approach. And what I've found is that once people do start delivering, then they go back and actually we can do this. People do like this. This is not a threat to me at the election. You know, actually my vote percentage has gone up. And then you say to another politician, well, look at that. They had some challenges here and here, but actually number of people who voted for them have, have gone up or they're popular, you know, or people are calling out for this now in, in these boroughs. So there's a sort of there's a whole you you can't just take one tool to to change this. It, it's a whole range, and I think that's why it's so important that whether it be me or anyone else, that cities have someone who is responsible for this, who is championing it, who is um who is accountable for it as well to uh, to the people in power. I'm very conscious. Um, we've had the last couple of episodes we've recorded. Actually, um, we've interviewed representatives from both Wheels for Wellbeing and Transport for All. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, representing in slightly differing ways and to a different extent, but representing the 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 kind of broad, very broad church that is the in inverted commas, disabled community or that voice. Um, and I was very, I've been very struck by how unconscious I was of this entire, it required a paradigm shift from me as a non-disabled person to kind of get inside the head of, of this person who's speaking to me about the various problems that um, certain types of disability present um, and really quite stridently bemoaning this sense that uh, they feel quite often that their voice is is only heard retrospectively and they're not part of the front end of this 
process sometimes. Are you satisfied? Um, and I'm really not asking this with any agenda, agenda simply um, as an open question. Are you satisfied that TFL and the work that you've done has always represented that as, as fully as it could have done? Um, anyone who knows me will say, actually, Will's never satisfied with anything. Uh, and I think there's always room to, to do more. Um, yeah, I think, you know, a key part of our approach has to be that the benefits of active travel, which are, you know, you can list forever, um, but the benefits of active travel have to be available for all Londoners. And it's important that we maximise those benefits for everyone, including people with disabilities. Now, you know, I, like you, I, I wasn't aware of some of the challenges. I've been out, actually going out with Wheels for Wellbeing was particularly insightful for me to actually understand what it's like to cycle on some of the cycle routes uh, using adaptive uh, tricycles, adaptive cycles, and understanding, you know, simple things like, well, what a camber feels like when you're riding a bike with different number of wheels, which I had, hadn't experienced before. Um, but it's, I think, you know, different types of different dis uh, disabilities I mean that different interventions and different schemes affect people in different ways. So, you know, what might be good for one set group of people with disabilities, like some of the benefits of low traffic neighborhoods can be good for people with, you know, neurological disabilities, but can be challenging for people with other disabilities. And so how we get that in the, in the round is, uh, is, is important. I, you know, like you, I speak to a lot of different groups and different sort of uh, people with, you know, with disability, disabled community, but also across the board. And I think everybody's agreed on one thing, that the status quo is not, is not what is desirable here. Um, and, uh, and we do need to make change, but we do need to I think we do need to do more uh, to uh, to engage people from from the outset on that design process. I think you know the last year, the pace and scale of street space and the lack of engagement that came with that through the through the government uh, directives have caused a particular problem. That um, that you know that, that some of the changes that were happening on people's streets quite simply were a surprise. And I think that's something I'm I'm glad that that guidance has changed, and I'm glad that that isn't no longer the case. So I do think we need to do more on our on our engagement uh, process, and that needs to be not just at the end of the process, but during the process. I think we need to to, to make this thirty. But it's also, I think it is worth noting that particularly on disabilities, that you know, eighty one percent of disabled people every week, you know, walk at least once a week. Fifty eight percent of disabled people use the bus at least once a week. The same percentage of disabled people cycle as use taxis once a week. You know. So we've got to make sure that actually we're making the space safer for everybody, suitable for everybody, and allowing people to 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 get those benefits of active travel, even if they have got a disability or that they don't feel comfortable. And I think, you know, one of the things I'd like to do is actually do more to sort of help, you know, yeah, to do more to listen and to and to engage with people at an earlier stage. Uh, the other thing, so the role, uh, we had our podcast reviewed and, and I, um, by somebody quite recently, Will, and um, they came up with a great phrase that um, we have a journalist, that's Laura, an advocate, that's Adam, and I'm apparently the devil's advocate. I think I only play that role simply because I'm 
simply because I'm horrendously ill-informed and I, I'm always asking the sort of like outsider numpty question, really. Are those the best um, questions to ask? Well, sometimes it can be. Sometimes they can just be stupid, and this is probably going to be one of those occasions. Um, Will, no. but um, this is setting <laughs> me up for some horrendously complicated no, questions. No, I'm, no. What you don't understand is I'm setting myself up here. Um, what I, what I've, what I've learned actually over the course of the last year since we've been doing this podcast, and it's kind of, it's been a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Is that um. I'm obviously, I come from, I come from, I came to this whole debate as a, as an urban cyclist. You know, that's weirdly, I used to think I was Bradley Wiggins. I was one of those kind of lycra clad people who will ride very expensive bikes and, you know, and bit by bit, I've kind of just slowed down and detoxified and I, you know, don't even wear lycra anymore. And um, I'm totally wedded to that way of life. I've just, I've just come off a block of eight days where I've ridden every day into an absolutely howling headwind, by the way, from Lewisham to Ealing. Uh, to go and commentate on a bike race and then back uh, back home again. And it's been brutal, to be honest, but I still really enjoyed it. That's my everyday lived experience. I am that, I am that London, you know, cyclist that you're after, really, that you're trying to promote. Um, I'm he. Um, but here's the but. I've, over the course of the last year, I've suddenly realised that, you know, for every person on a bike, there are 200 who are walking, Right at any given time. I don't know. I've plucked that figure out of thin air, but it's a big number, right? And now I'm noticing that for every person on a bike, there's probably someone on a scooter. (laughs) And I'm wondering whether actually concentrating, focusing all our efforts on me and the bike is only a very partial picture of what needs to change. And I'm wondering whether things like electric scooters are going to change your job completely in the years to come, because it seems to be happening very fast. I I'd agree with you, Ned. If I if I spent all my time catering for the likes of you, I would not be doing my job properly. Uh, you know, uh, it, I, I couldn't agree more. One, um, you know, as I said before, we, we, we have to make our streets safer for people who are cycling at the moment. But the, the big challenge and the, the, the thing that the rest of the, the city depends on is that in terms of cycling, it's getting people who aren't cycling to, to cycle more. And, you know, we know that there are millions of journeys that can be done by bike um, but not every journey can, um, you know, we know that. And, uh, and, 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 and this isn't an anti-car agenda, but only one half of my job is cycling. And everybody tends to fixate on the cycling because I don't know why. Um, it seems, you know, there are, there are, I think it's a more organized sector. People identify it. But, uh, but I think ultimately, because mo- everybody walks for, or wheels part of their, their, part of their, their journey. Um, and so if I was only doing that, then if I was only doing the cycling, it, it wouldn't have taken account. And that's why I think at the very heart of, you know, I, I don't have a cycling budget. What I have is a healthy street budget, and that is making our streets better for walking and cycling. Um, and if you look at the indicators and the quality criteria and what we do on that, those include, you know, making our streets easier to cross. Does it have shade and shelter for, for people? Does it, is it too noisy? Do people feel safe? Are there things to do? Do people feel relaxed? Has it got clean air? Those are the things that will encourage people to uh, and, en- and enable more people to, to, to be active. So it's, it's not just the, uh, the, the cycling, it is the, the, the walking. And I, I take the walking aspect very seriously. It just seems that most journalists don't want to talk about it. Uh, they, they like to talk on the cycling because often it's quite controversial and you talk about, you know, talk it, saying the word cyclist in some some areas is like holding a red rag up to the book to a red rag to a book it, it, it creates 
um, you know, it creates um, it creates noise and attention and controversy. But walking, I think, is is one of the most important things that all of us can do to improve our health and improve our city. And there are, of course, new technologies coming along. You know, every time I look at my kids' Christmas list, there's some new gadget, whether it's an electric scooter or a hoverboard or some new thing, newfangled gadget that is a that is coming, but clearly electric scooters are, you know, are going to be part of our sort of urban transport system. Um, I, you know, I, I think, I don't, don't know if you know, but the, the government are trialing, uh, trialing uh, some e-scooter trials in different cities around the, uh, around the country. London is in the process of working through uh, that trial. Um, and, um, and hopefully that, that will be coming, uh, uh, coming out soon. My own personal view on electric scooters is that you can't, I think that they present challenges. They present challenges to a lot of different groups, uh, but they also present opportunities. They're not a panacea that some advocates would argue for, and they're certainly not the horrendous threat that other people would say. I do have some concerns. I worry about the, at the moment, there is no, um, do shut me off if I'm babbling on too much about this, but electric scooters, if there is, you know, I do have some concerns that one, if, one is that the, there is very little regulation on the vehicle standard, so what speed they can do. I saw a bloke, I was uh, the traffic lights going up Tower Hill, and a guy shot off on it. He told me he could do 50 miles an hour on his electric scooter. Yeah. And, oh my and God, he could. I think I've seen I looked those. it up afterwards. Yeah. yeah. It's astonishing. That's not safe. Um, you know, some of them have got brakes in different places. Some of them haven't got front and back brakes. Uh, some of them have got lights. Some of them don't. What size should the wheels be? All of that sort of stuff. But, regulate a sort of a vehicle needs to be in place for, for the good. The second piece is that where should they go? And they shouldn't go on pavements. I, I worry about them going on pavements for people who walk, people who've got mobility issues, people pushing uh, push chairs, people walking their dogs, people walking with kids. You know, they shouldn't be on pavement. Absolutely not. And the third piece is actually about how cities can regulate the number of uh, these the scooters. So particularly with rental e-scooters, you look at some other cities around the world, there have been thousands of them uh, sort of suddenly deposited on this. And we had a little foretaste of that with the dockless bikes a few years ago that sort of didn't actually work out from a business proposition for most of them. But for the electric scooters, what we don't want are thousands of them suddenly, you know, tens of thousands of scooters cluttering up central London parked all over the place. So there needs to be the power for cities to regulate how many they, they are in the city and how they operate. But will the the um, we're talking slightly two different slightly different things. We are going down an e-scooter cul-de-sac here, admittedly. But like I say, and like you agree, I think they're really significant and happening fast. But there's two things, isn't there? There's the, there's the rental schemes, yeah. like Lime or whatever that London are obviously about to trial. Um, but I think far more significant than that are the little tiny ones that you just buy from the shop down the road. It costs a couple of hundred quid because they're game changing, aren't they? The the higher the the big higher ones are quite cumbersome, lumpy big bits of kit that you can't just fold in two and take onto a bus or take with you down onto the tube or take into your office. But these little e-scooters, which do the job pretty effectively as far as I can make out, um, that's the future, I think. So I, I just, I, it depends what define do the job because they, they, can, they can be good at some things. Yeah. But my point is that um, electric scooters don't provide, they're not active transport. Yeah, they're, they're, you're standing on the thing. You're not getting the same level of activity as an e-assist bike or a bike or by walking. Yeah, 
So while I say that they are better than cars in terms of an urban transport option, they are not as good as cycling and they are not as good as walking and they're not as good as e-bikes because you don't get all the benefits of those in terms of the physical activity benefits that we know are actually critical for health, mental well uh, and well-being. They're also not as environmentally friendly. So I think they are part of the solution for urban areas, but they are not be all, be all and end all. And, uh, and I think that's why, you know, from my perspective, we need to get the, the legislation right. The government do need to look at how, you know, how you, how you, how you regulate them, how they, where they go, the speed, all the things I just talked about. Because essentially, we need to make them as safe as possible on, on our roads. I'm sorry, I'm hogging it now. Um, but I, I totally agree with you, Will. But, and, and I'm no fan of them particularly. I take on board um, all your reservations about their green credentials. I think they are a little bit unsafe looking. My point is, though, th- they're popular. They're really popular. They're, they're getting very popular very fast. And they are fundamentally, the point is they're accessing a hard to access group of the population who you can bang on about getting on a bike. They're not going to do it, but they, a scooter appeals to them. Or they so, may do it if a scooter, a scooter might be the bridge from doing nothing and using <laughs> a car, using a scooter and realising bikes yeah. are better than scooters. But I agree. I agree with all of that. But, but certainly that's why they need to be made safe. You can't have these things that can do 50 miles an hour. Like that's insane for a vehicle like that to not regulate whether they've got front or back brakes. That's insane. You know, that's why we need to be able to make this safe. And particularly, you know, for certain groups of the population that have got sort of various, you know, underrepresented groups that have got disadvantages in terms of health or road danger outcomes anyway. And if that's what they're, if they're going for something else more, it's, it's on the government to make these things safe as possible. And, and that's what's lacking at the moment. Um, you mentioned, um, oh yeah, I'm a fan of e-scooters as well. They're, uh, yeah, we're, we're not sponsored by an e-scooter company though. We, Although we we'd, like be op- we'd be open to it. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out we're not sponsored by anyone actually. No, we're not. Oh, it's, it's, it's a request. That you we're, we're tr- <laughs> yes, Will. Yes, it is. We're, we're true amateurs. We're true amateurs in the best sense of the word. Unpaid. Doing it for the love of it. One of the kind of things that's changed uh, during your time as Walking and Cycling Commissioner, Will, is the budget, London's operational budget, uh, trip to Transport for London's operational budget has kind of disappeared from, from central government. Um, also, uh, during the pandemic, you've got a new couple of uh, board members at TFL and uh, yeah, things have changed quite a lot. I'm wondering what you, how you think things are going to sort of work going forward if, if Sadiq's re-elected and presumably you'd stay on. Maybe you won't. There's quite a lot in that question, Laura. Um, I know. I know. I'm, <laughs> she, I'm she rolling them all that. into one. Um, so, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> the the you know, TFL, for those people who aren't aware, is one of the few sort of major city transport authorities that's mass, you know, so dependent on fares, 70% of uh, TFL's funding. And we're talking, you know, this is a £10 billion a year business that, you know, that, that runs the transport in the city is funded through fares, you know, and income associated with fares, like advertising and, and, and that sort of thing. And obviously during COVID, when, you know, the tube journey shrank to five, I think at one point we're operating at 5% of the normal ridership, that has a catastrophic effect on, on finances. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of that, we had a government bailout, we've had two government bailouts actually in terms of support packages to keep 
transport system running. Uh, and the, the investment for our recycling infrastructure comes through the TFL finances. And so obviously, this has had a big impact on 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 my work, and I suppose on everything that's going on within within the city. I think the good news is that uh, you know the, the mayor and the prime minister might not see eye to eye on everything or, or or a lot, but the one thing they do both enjoy and both value and both recognise the importance of is active travel. So you know both of them cycle around the city, um, but both of them, I think, you know truly believe that the future of our cities is based on, uh, on on more active travel and more sustainable forms of travel, which is, this is good news because actually the funding packages that, uh, and the support packages that uh, have come through TFL have uh, all included a uh, budget for continuing to invest in our uh, active transport infrastructure, uh, make our roads safer and, uh, and, and enable more people to, to walk and cycle. You know, all of these things, you know, with a, suddenly with a, with more government uh, funding becomes more government involvement. But as I said, because we're actually, you know, we're essentially we, we both agree on what, what, what needs to happen. And we both, uh, uh, um, you know, this, it's, it's, a, it's an area of agreement and, and therefore we, we do work together to try and deliver that. So throughout this period, I've worked with Department for Transport colleagues, Number 10 colleagues, DFT colleagues, Borough colleagues. To deliver the transformation that uh, that's going on, and it and it comes back to you know we share the same goals, we work together to deliver it. You know, as you said, there's an election coming up. Uh, the mayor's up for re-election on the sixth of May. I hope everybody's registered to vote. Um, uh, but it is, and and the outcomes of that will depend or will, will will sort of depend on uh you know on my future and i i very much hope that uh i am still in post because while i think we've delivered a huge amount for london and we've seen a, a record growth in the number of people cycling we've seen record growth in you know, every monday i get an email from the santander cycle hire team who seems like every monday they send me another thing saying we've broken this record or that the at one point the the, the guys who do the cycle monitoring at tfl we couldn't believe the data they were getting. So since some oh, they thought something was broken. The census, <laughs> they thought the system had broken. You know, but it's been this massive record outcome. But while we have achieved a lot, we've got so much further to go. You know, you go and look at some of the other cities around the world, like Amsterdam and Copenhagen. They're far. You know, been doing this for much longer. We are we are leading as a big city uh, anywhere in the world, but uh, we have got such a long way to go. And and for me. That is about enabling all Londoners to be able to make the choice to, to walk and cycle. This is not saying everybody should walk and cycle. This is a simple choice. Do they have somewhere where they can feel safe to get around without causing air pollution, without creating uh, climate change gases, and without putting themselves at, uh, uh, in, in harm's way? And that's why we need to make sure that we've got a, a safe cycle network. In terms of things that you need to do well if Sadiq Khan is, Re-elected going forward, one of the things that you know I've I've noticed as somebody who walks and cycles in in London um, frequently, although I don't live there, is um, it, it is the disparity. And I wonder that there's a deeper question here of TFL as an organisation. Obviously, you're representing active travels agenda, and that's going higher up in TFL. TFL is still a massive organisation, and um, I used to cross the Euston Road every day, uh, which is a red route and, and controlled by TfL. And there are lots of these red routes across London. 
they're often very congested. I know that you're doing some work um, on red routes to make them, you know, cycle friendly, but largely the KPI there, I believe, is the key performance indicator is is is, is traffic flow uh, a lot of the time. Is that changing? Um, and I noted there was a question, I think it was from Caroline Russell the other week, uh, you know, pointing out that there are still around 150 uh, areas, um, uh, crossings that don't exist, basically, which don't have a green man signal on on red routes and i used to cro- cross the euston road every day you've done that now you've made you've made crossings on the euston road for pedestrians but you used to just have to run um and and that that sort of seems um a bit backwards for for a world-class city so i just wonder what your plan is with red routes because it's not that straightforward you know they are arterial roads routes aren't they as you'll know so so how do we solve a problem about these main roads which so many uh opponents of things like low traffic neighborhoods constantly discuss um and i think possibly some of the time they they might have a point because a lot of these ones don't have cycle facilities potentially so i you know i i don't think there's a single solution to every road i don't think you can have right this is our plan for every one of these roads and this is the sort of an ideological approach you've got to look at each road in and each and and how it works within an area on it in its own right I, I'm a huge fan of uh, some of the quieter routes uh, for cycle routes. Um, I think quite way two uh, that runs from Orphan Forest into the centre of town works really well. It's well used. We've had a huge increase in, in cycling. When things are done well, it, it's direct. It, it works. You, you don't need to say every red route needs a cycle route. And neither do you need to say every back route needs to be, be filtered. You know, you need to look at, well, what are you actually trying to achieve? There are routes which you can't, you know, there are there are routes which are, you know, you can't, if you take the golden, you know, you need the cycle routes to be safe and direct. Yeah, that's the two things you need from a, a cycle route. Um, and if you can't get it direct on, 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 on other roads, then maybe you do need to look at some of those big arterial roads. But we've got to also recognize that for our city to work, we need to actually make sure that essential freight can get around, our bus service can operate, or a raft of other things. So... There's no hard and fast rule for of what exactly we do on uh, on every red route, and um, you know there's <laughs> there's also it comes back to the point around the traffic authorities that red routes pass through borough roads too, and uh, and different boroughs have different views themselves. So the, the notoriously most difficult bits of any sort of route to sort out or, or there is sort out are where boroughs uh, are next to each other, and you've got a sort of TFL rolled in together because suddenly you've got there's one road, uh, the Bulls Pond Road is in uh, on the border between Islington and Hackney. Yeah. And the north oh, yeah. section of that road is in one borough of Highway Authority. So <laughs> the white line in, in the middle of the road is the dividing lane, and the south side is the other part. And, and, that, and we've tried to, tried to put in 150 metres of safe cycle route to connect up Cycle, uh, cycle Super Highway 1 going north-south, and that's taken... Well, it, it was my predecessor tried to do that, and we've actually finally managed to deliver it. But the challenges associated with the different highway authorities, it makes this all very, very complicated. I do agree with you, though, on the, the pedestrian crossing piece uh, and actually imp- improving the, uh, the facilities for pedestrians in London is an absolute priority. I think in the last uh, three or four years, we've delivered something like 700 new pedestrian improve- and improved pedestrian crossings. 600 plus junctions improved. I think we've rescheduled sort of over 5,000 tra- sets of traffic lights to improve the pedestrian crossing. Now, you know, clearly there's an awful lot more to do on this, but 
the idea that you know you look at each cycle route that so they get called cycle routes, but the the the, the scheme that we had in um to, to protect cyclists in in Holland Park to, from Holland Park Avenue to Notting Hill Gate had 15 mm. new pedestrian crossings on. Yeah, yet that was opposed by by K and C. Um, that you know we are building these schemes into uh into into um into into the into those routes. It's not just the cycling priority route. It is also those pedestrian crossings. Bishopsgate, I think, is another good example. You have four of the most dangerous junctions in the city along that route, and the scheme in Bishopsgate actually sort of um. Solve, you know, it made those junctions much safer. So, uh, you know, it's 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 about looking at each road in turn and and making sure that it works uh, for for that road. One of the things I'm really keen to do is uh, look at sort of a bit more, shift a bit more from area based, uh, sorry, uh, from route based planning to area based uh, planning. So rather than sort of focusing too much on well, whose road is this, yeah. Actually, let's look at the whole area. What's everybody trying to achieve, and work together with those boroughs and TfL and other highway authorities to to do that as an area based rather than necessarily a, a route based approach. So there's been a lot of discussion on Kensington High Street. It's dominated uh, some newspaper uh, column inches. It's um, it's brought people from um, from London uh, together uh, for and against it, and in fact. You know, against it from as far as Nigeria and Russia um, in the petition that was put forward uh, against it, which was questionable to say the least. Um, it is subject to a judicial r- review uh, from from a uh, campaign group, and that has led to it being reassessed. Uh, of which the crunch meeting is going to happen uh, imminently. Um, what's what's it been like, Will? From what you can tell us behind the behind the scenes and what is it? Because from the outside, it just looks like Kensington and Chelsea just have a fundamental dislike towards people who want to ride bikes safely. That's what it looks like. Is is that the case, um, or uh, am I am I misreading it? You're probably asking the wrong person there. I think that question should be directed to uh, the the elected members in Kensington and Chelsea. You know, I've worked really hard to try and work with the borough on two schemes now to deliver a safe cycle route across uh, east-west across across there, either that Notting Hill Gate and Holland Park Avenue or Kensington, uh, Kensington High Street. Um, you know, we shouldn't forget the fact that these are really dangerous roads. Um, just last week, there was a cyclist who was hit in a collision on, yeah. uh, not, um, on Notting Hill Gate exactly where we had proposed the cycle lane to happen. Thankfully, I think the person has not been seriously injured, but the difference between being seriously injured and, and, and a much worse outcome is can be centimetres or, or seconds. And, uh, and that's why creating, creating safe, safe, safe cycle infrastructure is so important. Um, you know, there have been two fatalities on that route, uh, but Kensington High Street is even more dangerous. Uh, it's the most... I think it's the highest rate of cycling casualties on any main road in, in that borough, and it's significantly higher than the Greater London average. Uh, this is about providing a safe route for people to get to school, to get across to work, to go to the shops, to go to the hospitals. It's got the backing of all sorts of uh, major institutions from Imperial College that onward. And what's really interesting, it, for each of those schemes which uh, the borough have said, which 
you know, whether it's the cycle lanes on Kensington High Street or on Holland Park Avenue, then we've always had the knockback that, oh, the residents don't want this or the residents are opposed to it without really having any evidence. We've seen surveys, as you said, that have attracted responses from as far away as Iowa and Caracas. Um, uh, but uh, actually, what what the people themselves think in, in, in Kensington and Chelsea? So I asked that question and we did a survey. We did a representative, independent survey, representative of, of the population, according to ethnic breakdown, in terms of age, in terms of income, in terms of scientifically, statistically valid uh, representative sample. That showed that 70% of our residents in Kensington Chelsea want safe cycle routes. Only 14% opposed that. It showed that 56% of people wanted the protected cycle lanes on Kensington Chelsea on Kensington High Street. Only 30% opposed it. 59% of residents want the council to introduce protected cycle routes on their main roads, whereas only 28% of people opposed it. So I do not understand what is happening at Kensington and Chelsea. Are they not listening to their residents? I, I honestly, you know, it is. It is, it is, it is wrong not to have a safe cycle route across that borough. It is wrong that people's lives are being placed at risk because of the lack of those facilities. Particularly when the number of people cycling in London is expanding very quickly. Particularly when neighbouring boroughs are developing very good networks and uh, and creating those types of cycle routes. Um, and so I go back to the point: you need to ask the Royal Borough of Kensington Chelsea those questions, not me, because it is their decision as the highway authority to not do these things. It is their decision as a highway authority to, to keep the levels of road danger that they've got. And for the life of me, I don't know why. If on Wednesday the, uh, the cabinet members and the leader decide uh, not to enable safe cycling um, in Kensington and Chelsea on the Kensington High Street, will uh, and has the mayor considered um, invoking his ability to take control of the roads. Obviously, he needs Secretary of State approval, which is uh, uh, complex and problematic uh, politically. But is that that must have been seriously discussed um, so far? Because they're just not playing ball, and it's putting Londoners' lives at risk. So, the under the under the GLA Act, the mayor has got the authority re- to request highway authority of of roads from boroughs, but that needs the consent of the borough. Um, which I think is where the stumbling block lies. Um, and if that uh, consent is not forthcoming, then it gets escalated to the Secretary of State for transport. Um, uh, that, so that's the pro- that's the, the process for that. Um, you know, for me, I don't want to go seizing roads off people. I think that you know that creates all sorts of problems, and you need a you know all sorts of things associated with that. What I, what I want is that uh, for. Royal Borough of Kensington Chelsea to to, to recognise that they've made a mistake in taking that uh, protected cycle lane out, and to reinstate it, and to work with us to uh, to make it uh, to make it work for, uh, for for everyone who lives in that area. Thank you, Will. Um, and I, uh, as as somebody who cycles in that area, who relies on that area, I'm not a resident, but I still need to get through that area safely as do my staff um we all we all appreciate the um the work that's been done and hopefully uh, common sense will prevail yeah here here I, as i said i've uh, that was one of the roads i used on my last block of commuting to get uh, you know across east western london it's a nightmare it's uh, it, it seems an terrifying, absolute genuinely terrifying yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i just avoided it i must admit and went on side streets but 
kept getting lost. Difficult, it's difficult um, to do that in a direct route, though, in that, you know, there is, is, there, is, there yeah. is just not an alternative route. And it comes back to the point I was making earlier that cycle lanes need to be safe and direct because they're not direct. A lot of people won't use them. And, uh, and, yeah. and therefore, it, it just puts people at risk on the roads that aren't safe. I got completely lost. Repeatedly, every single day, and, and I, but I, but that was quite a happy circumstance because I wasn't particularly pushed for time, and I d- I discovered that Holland Park is actually a park. I thought it was just <laughs> yeah. a tube station. There's a nice. I park had no idea. There. Be careful it's what a you really say. Nice here. park, isn't Be it? Be careful what you say here, Ned. You might end up as like some sort of testimonial on the Kensington and Chelsea website <laughs> saying Ned Bolting, cycling enthusiast, <laughs> says these quiet roads are brilliant. Nice to get lost in Kensington and Chelsea. I love the park. There's quite a hill. Thing. Holland Park is like, yeah, it's quite it's a hill, hill at the top yeah. there. Yeah. Tell you what, anyway. going up that hill on, on a normal bike, you know, at eight, nine miles an hour, having a taxi or a bus behind you is not an enjoyable experience. That That's is why we need the horrible. cycle lanes on, on, on there. Yeah. You know, you've got a four-wheel drive coming up behind you uh, and, and someone behaving aggressively. It really is, it really is quite unpleasant. That was some, incidentally, a bit of a humble brag from Adam there about the speed that he was travelling uphill eight, nine miles an hour. <laughs> Up to eight, eight nine that. miles an hour. But, um, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Will, we'll let you go. Thank you very much for your time. More power to your arm. Uh, good luck. And, um, you know, good luck with the election as well. Let's hope that uh, by after May you're still in a job and that uh, you continue to do it uh, with such passion, enthusiasm and effectiveness. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thanks ever so Thank much, you. everyone. Well, that was Will Norman. Someone who I was meeting for the first time. I know, Adam, you know him very well. And obviously, Laura, you two go back years, don't you, with your journalistic yeah. endeavours? <laughs> I did the first interview with him when he became uh, walking and cycling commissioner. I went to a walking conference where he and Jeanette Sadiq Khan were there. So I got two interviews in one. And uh, yeah, and I thought he might be too nice to do the job. And so it's been a running joke ever since. Well, I suppose that there aren't many people who... Um, have that are, are in a position like Will. I mean, is it? Is it? Am I right in thinking it's just kind of Will and Chris Boardman in in Manchester? And Dame Sarah Sarah story. Sarah story. And Dame yeah. Sarah. So does does in she? Sheffield. This is a Sheffield, isn't it? Does yeah, Sheffield. Does, does Sarah come with a similar amount of sort of political clout? I mean, is she in a position where she can achieve things and and put put bricks and mortar in place? I think she's working on her. Um, you know, on the on the mandate, she seems to have this. It's a it's a fairly new region, if you like. Um, so often, when that's the case, when you have these kind of devolved uh, regions, it takes a little bit of working out, like who does what. But there's certainly, um, you know, there's certainly like what she does and what she says is 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 bang on. She seems to really have the support locally um, to 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 do that. So you know, I I think that looks looks quite. Positive, and you also have um, Simon O'Brien, uh, who is in Liverpool, in Liverpool. City region. Um, he used to be in Hollyoaks, I no, think. No, Brookside. Brookside, that was it. Sorry, um, he used to be in I Brookside, but that's Brookside. not why he got the job. Um, but he, he is a good local um, champion, doing stuff there. And and then also there is uh, Lee Craigie. Uh, have I said that right? Scotland. Yeah, yeah there's Lee Craigie, Craigie yeah. in, in Scotland, who's, Scotland, who's a commissioner for the whole country. And then, of course, there is going to be, because um, the prime minister said, there's going to be a cycling and walking commissioner for um, for England uh, as well at some point um, uh, in the future when Active Travel England is formed. Um, so I think, you know, as, as Will says, there's there's there needs to be more um, of them, and I think in many cases it can de 
um, it, it, a walking cycling commissioner can do a lot of things and say a lot of things that maybe a directly elected uh, mayor or politician um, can't. So I think it can be really, yeah, really effective as well. Will showing and as Chris has shown and, and others have shown as well. I've worked with um, Simon O'Brien. Have you? Were you an extra in Brookside? No, it's, um, I've only just, I've just, while you were, not that I wasn't concentrating on what you were saying, but I was also looking at Simon O'Brien's Wikipedia page just to check what what soap opera he was in. He was in uh, Brookside. So Laura was right there. Played played in this from the soap to launch in 1982 until 1987 when his character was killed off in in York, I don't know why that's relevant. He then acted in the British version of he then acted in the British version of Fraggle Rock. Remember that? Yes. No. Yeah, Fraggle Rock. Can't I can vaguely remember it. Anyway, but where our, where our career paths crossed was he presented a short-lived football quiz show called Do I Not Know That on ITV Digital, and for the ten months it existed, I too was employed as a football presenter on ITV Digital. Ah, so there you go. Uh, there we go. He's a, yeah, he's, he's a nice guy. He's quite fun. He's the, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was wholly irrelevant. It took us off in a path that we didn't need to go, um, uh, which suggests to me that uh, we've probably had our time now and should draw mm-hmm. this to a close. Yeah. Uh, in which case um, I, shall, I shall refer to my script if I can find it that Laura always sends us because I like to say the exact right words in uh, just signing off uh, once again. You've been listening, as ever, to Streets Ahead. Do let us know what you think. Find us at Pod Streets Ahead, rate us, review us, and share the podcast with anyone, particularly a potential sponsor who you might think would enjoy it. <laughs> and from, from Adam Moore and myself, uh, catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.